Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 343 as he lived in peace so did he die i need to start with an apology everyone though i have this vivid and immensely powerful sense of deja vu so sorry if i've already done this it concerns the word of the week recently wherein i said that the french desert for empty sandy desert was used to replace the word void when used for the period after dinner and before games had been set up. Well, both Olivier and Alain have pointed out that this is not the case. The word is instead dessert, which had the original meaning of de servir, you know, to clear away, which makes much more sense, if less sort of romantic. Sorry and all that. The rest of the word week, though, was all true. Anywho, Now that the war with Spain was official policy, there was less need to restrain the media as James had worked so hard to do up till then. And said media, feeling the yoke removed from its shoulders, took full advantage of the less stringent application of licensing and repression. As a result, the virulence of anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic rhetoric reached fever pitch. There was also increasing hysteria about the reports from the war in the Palatinate with all sorts of wild exaggeration. The monstrous murder of a Protestant minister when Heidelberg fell to the Catholic commander Tilly and the death of the commander of English volunteers there, Gerard Herbert. The media, I guess, have never been especially noted for pouring oil on troubled waters, just generally for pouring diesel oil. The call of the editor to, let's just take the heat out of the situation, tell everyone to calm down, I doubt often rings around the newsroom. I could be wrong, I've never worked in one, but that's my guess. Anyway, there were no such cries in England in 1624 when a writer called Leighton sat in his study chewing on the end of his quill and subsequently chewing the furniture as he penned words about the ripping up of women, the shameful abusing of them, the torturing of men with new devised torments, the bathing in the blood of inoffensive children, the cruel murdering of God's ministers. I'm not sure I recognise the term inoffensive children, but you know other people's children are different, of course, and I could go on. I suppose cold showers were less available those days. But with such hysterical writing, it is little wonder that the atmosphere was febrile. And to be fair... Protestantism did look to be in full flight from the forces of Catholicism on the continent. Anyway, Buckingham and Charles 
in their new anti-Spanish phase, had now gone from zero to hero with the public and were riding the crest of a wave of populism. Buckingham, then, was by 1624 chief minister in everything but name. His authority with the ailing James was deeper than ever, his relationship with Charles almost as strong. By the end of the year, James was a right poorly pig, suffering from terrible leg pain, filled with melancholy and rarely now leaving his room. Although he continued to take an interest in European affairs and remained at heart attached to their idea of a European peace and even tried to revive the idea of the Spanish match. When he did that, Charles asserted himself forcefully with his newly found self-confidence and squished his dad like a bug. Anyway, with James largely confined to his room, Buckingham bestrode the political world like a colossus, and a colossus with particularly fine hose, it has to be said, which I think might be unusual in the word of colossi, but who am I to judge? His peers recognised his supremacy and preeminence, and Buckingham was treated with a level of deference normally reserved for the royal family. Edward Conway, for example, who as a privy councillor and James's Secretary of State might be expected to see himself at least as Buckingham's equal, always addressed him as his gracious patron and called him Excellency, which got to be so embarrassing that Buckingham actually asked him to stop, but Conway kept right on doing it. The Bishop of Clandath called him High and Illustrious Prince, and there was a rumour repeated by the Venetian ambassador that he was going to be made Prince of Tipperary, which would have been a long way to go, but given the tight grip of the Villiers clan on Ireland, was not beyond belief. Essentially, Buckingham's political opponents had been put to flight. The king and prince relied on him utterly. Buckingham's position was unassailable. Now, that's a term if used by Margaret Thatcher, makes you look over your shoulder, and if used by the board of the football club, makes the manager sign on immediately at the local job centre. But here, it reflected nubbit reality. Now, I have an apology to make to you all. A second one. The thing is that I have got the pacing of my writing wrong. We need to finish off Jimmy, but I am not ready yet to start on Charles. And so I came across something I thought might interest you, and I have resorted then to a bit of what might frankly be described as padding, the sort of stuff that fills 94.8% of the Sunday papers, frankly meaningless drivel, usually concerning calories and that sort of thing. Still, I did find this bit of meaningless drivel amusing, so maybe you will too. This is the breakdown of the Duke of Buckingham's ingoings and outgoings at this time, which appear in Lockyer's biography of Buckingham. Forgive me, it won't take many minutes, and anyway, it is rather interesting. This is an example of the sort of way that magnates back in the days of Elizabeth and James were expected to carry on. I can tell you in advance that my father, with his Lancashire roots, who spent a fair amount of time making sure all the lights in the house were turned off, whether or not you were in the room at the time, would have experienced a very sharp pain in the wallet had he heard it. So, by 1624 then, Buckingham's income was probably really about £20,000 a year. I have referred with some care 
to the National Archives Currency Converter, which is a website so fun that if she'd known about it, Aunt Edith would never have even caught her left tit in the mangle in the first place. So, £20,000 in 1624 was about 2.6 million quid a year in today's money. 2.6 million quid a year every year. Just for reference, to those of you country folk who may find the comparison more enlightening, that would have allowed him to buy about 11,000 cows each year, which is a lot in little old England, not sure how it compares to Oz or the wilds of Canada or Texas, probably not so much, but it's a lot for us. Now, I imagine that you, like me, would think that getting through 2.6 million quid every single year would be quite impossible. But Buckingham pretty much did, and a bit more. The following figures are in order of 1624 cost, then 2022 equivalent, and then cows. Okay? Ready? Keeping Mrs. Buck and the household in order, for example, cost about 3,000 quid a year. That's 400,000 pounds in today's money and 1,600 cows. And actually, his mum, the Countess, costs not much less than that. Attendance at court cost Buckingham Two and a half thousand quid, that's £330,000 a year or 1,300 cows for going to work. And then there were the wheels, otherwise known as stabling costs, which alone were 1,500 quid. I don't think I can get all through all of this in detail because I can already feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. There were servants' wages and pensions for hangers-on and so on, building maintenance, debt servicing and the great catch-all of miscellaneous, which included a lot of gambling. But let me pick out a couple more. Keeping himself appropriately dressed cost 1,500 quid a year. That's 200,000 pounds or 800 cows every year on glad rags, which dwarfs even my annual M&S bill for wife runs. And tilting, cutting an appropriate dash in the tilt yard, cost itself £1,000 a year, which is £130,000 these days. That is an expensive sport and no mistake. All told then, his annual outgoings were 18,200 quid or £2.4 million or 10,000 gowns if you prefer. Phew, I hear you say. Well, he's a tight old geezer then, living well within his means, putting a bit by even for his old age. Hmm. Nope, not a bit of it. Because there are extraordinaries, ladies and gentlemen. Extraordinary extraordinaries. So he came back from Spain with £13,000 worth of debt. There's 30000 or 4 million quid in bills unaccounted for in all of the above, as were loans raised on tick from tradesmen to the tune of £28,000. That is £3.7 million quid, which would have to be paid back in three years' time at 40%, which is a level of interest that would make even today's bankers faint with envy. In all, he owed £91,000, which is £12 million, or 50,000 cows, give or take an udder or two. So, he didn't actually own any of all those cows he earned every year. A set of commissioners was looking into the Bucks' finances, and they advised him, in a fatherly sort of way, carefully work out how he was going to pay all of this before he took on any new expenditures. Advice 
he cheerfully ignored, assuming that God would provide, or probably more likely James or Charles would provide. So, instead, he relaunched into rebuilding York House and refurbishing it, and no messing with any UPVC windows, let me tell you. Inigo Jones would visit York House and was so blown away by its magnificence that he was reported to have almost thrown himself on his knees in front of it. Buckingham had also recently gone into the art collecting business, which is a fine way to save a few quid, of course. When he was in Spain, he'd picked a Titian and a Tintoretto, which set him back 60 quid. Even at today's prices, that does indeed look like a steal. Obviously, Buckingham was an exceptional example of the type of magnate, and I seem to remember Cardinal Wolsey's income back in 1510 was 9,000 quid a year, which, given it was before all those years of inflation, was actually worth £6 million a year, making Villiers look like a peasant. So even then, this is not necessarily completely out of the ordinary. And his mindset was also utterly typical of the Elizabethan and Jacobean grand noblemen. This was how they lived, how they were expected to live. And running a tight ship was just not high on the agenda. Lord knows what the Gini coefficient was back then. Anyway, apologies for that bit of noodling. Let us now return to politics and diplomacy, matters of state and high policy, rather than rummaging around in Buckingham's drawers. So, the vault facet in foreign policy from peace to war, if policy is not too grand a word, had more components to it than raising money from Parliament. The first to be implemented was a renewed defensive alliance with the Dutch, engineered by Buckingham, which allowed the Dutch to recruit 6,000 soldiers in England and to come to England's defence if she was attacked. It has to be said, this was agreed in the face of a certain amount of media hysteria all of its own at the time. So there's no doubt that the religious affiliation between England and the Dutch was very close. But the Dutch East India Company had chosen this moment to damage their collective friendship bracelet by seizing 10 rival English merchants in Indonesia, torturing them with fire and water, then beheading them in public in what became known as the Amboina Massacre. Obviously, business can get cutthroat, we all understand that, but this seemed excessive and there was uproar in England. But James, again providing the statesman in all of this, insisted any retribution be sought through diplomatic, not military channels. The other general approach was to turn from Spain to the Habsburgs' greatest and longest-standing competitor and rival, I speak, of course, of France. The France of Louis XIII and another super-famous figure of European history, Cardinal Richelieu, Guy of Musketeer fame and all of that. As soon as Buckingham and Charles had fled Madrid, Buckers was thinking ahead. When you've just tweaked the nipples of the biggest kid in the playground, it pays to find a big friend to stand behind. There was only one candidate with the girth to cast a shadow that wide, and her name was France. James Hay, Earl of Carlisle, was sent to the court of Louis XIII, for Louis XIII had a 15-year-old daughter, Henrietta Maria, who would therefore be an eminently suitable match for the amorous Charles. And Louis was surely a good target, since it was said that he detested the Spaniards, 
and had a mission to restrain their unbridled passion for domination. So all looked set fair, and negotiations were put underway. Though there might have been less sunny optimism in English circles had they known of the report sent home by the resident French ambassador in London, Count Tillier, who with typical Gallic brutality described Stuart England as a miserable state, without money, without friends, and without reputation, with only their glory and vanity left. And he warned Louis that if he did this marriage thing, he would not only have to support an old house, but prop up a failing one. Nonetheless, Louis and Richelieu were undeniably interested. Possibly predictably, the discussions began to focus on religion. The royal family were, of course, Catholic, so what would Henrietta Maria's rights, access to worship and entourage be like? And what benefits would Catholics in James's domains gain as a result of this marriage? The failing Stuarts would be oh so lucky if they landed. But as those discussions went through the largely predictable gears, there was another discussion taking place which focused on the opportunities presented by the arrival in April 1624 in England of one Ernst Count Mansfield. Mansfield was a commander who had already fought in the Dutch Wars and tried to recover the Palatinate, now completely lost actually to the Habsburgs. He arrived in England to try and get money for the cause, though he personally was Catholic, which gives you an idea of the increasingly complex motivations involved in the Thirty Years' War. Well, his timing, as it happens, was spot on. England was up for getting something done. Discussions with the French also went well. Louis agreed to cover half the cost of an army that Mansfield might raise and provide 3,000 cavalry in addition, who would join Mansfield as soon as they arrived off the ferry. And initially, everyone was agreed about objectives. The saviour of Elizabeth and Frederick of the Palatinate would take his crack army of highly trained military operatives across France. As they marched, they'd probably be singing, and no doubt they'd save lots of people from demons along the way. They would arrive in the Palatinate, briskly drive the horrid Habsburgs out from the pitiful Palatinate, and a new era would dawn in which France would once more lead Europe. Cry, mm, Denis, I suppose. It has to be said, en passant, that Buckingham here was instrumental in starting the process of building the Protestant alliance of multiple states that would save the cause of Protestantism in Europe, or prolong a dynastic struggle for supremacy that would result in the millions of deaths, depending probably on your perspective about these things. The reality of what panned out with Count Mansfield's expedition was radically, radically different, and I mean radically. James, it must be noted, had another of those insights with which he'd favoured us along the way. He didn't trust Louis as far as he could throw him in a game of ball and suspected he'd divert the invasion of his own ends. Control of the Valtaline Pass in the Alps was James's guess. It turned out to be the Dutch city breeder, but hey, that's a detail. He wasn't wrong in principle. But James was persuaded by the buck and baby Charles, and anyway, the crowd were baying for action, and James wanted to help his daughter Elizabeth, and anyway, his, hurt, his legs hurt like fury. Could he go back to bed now? 
things started going downhill from there on in. Mansfield was allowed to recruit, but he had to keep his hands off anyone who might know one end of the musket or pike from the other. The trained bands that were drilled and trained in each county by the Lord's Lieutenant. Nope, those might be needed here. So instead, Mansfield was allowed to impress his army. That, as you may know, is broadly going to all the desperate people and saying that if they join the army, they'll be fed and watered. If they're in prison, they'll be released and forgiven. Most of the people were therefore, of course, in a pretty sorry state. An early modern prison, for example, focused less on rehabilitation and more on extracting every remaining penny from the prisoner, and if they had none, leaving them to rot. And if the people that were impressed weren't actually in prison, the recruits were desperate, poor, ill, and physically not at their peak. Plus, there was no money, the curse of early modern armies. But this situation was particularly bad. So, as an army of over 13,000 men assembled around Dover, they came without proper food, conditions and water, and so they took it from the local inhabitants like a plague of locusts, but, you know, bigger and with muskets. So lawless and untrained were they that Mansfield, in fact, refused to appear in front of them, scared of his own safety. By December, most of the French objectives <gasps> did indeed change. They wanted Mansfield to attack Breda first, to raise the siege of the Spanish army there, and then go on to the Palatinate once they'd done that. James would not have this. He still in his heart held out the hope of peace with the Spanish, and attacking Breda would be direct war on Philip IV's forces, whereas in the Palatinate he would formally at least be fighting Imperial Holy Roman Empire men. So, in a hump, Louis refused passage through France for Mansfield. That was a disaster. Now they'd have to go a long way round through the Low Countries. Surely. Pull out now. Disband. Rethink. But no, action was demanded, and these desperate men were ravaging Kent. Anyway, ravaging it, I tell you. Buckingham told Mansfield to get on with it, man, and in January 1625, in the dead of winter, Mansfield embarked on ships. As they left, one commentator remarked, What miracles can possibly be wrought now by them? untrained and undisciplined and in this rotten time of winter? Good question. Rhetorical question, actually. The person knew the answer very well. But Mansfield sailed, France refused him an entrance, and so he diverted to the Dutch Republic. They didn't want him either, so they stayed on board for a while in their own slime, until they eventually managed to land. They had little food, no money, the Dutch had no warning and were unprepared to support them. The result was disease, famine, death, desertion. Not necessarily in that order. We die like dogs. And in the face of the enemy, we could not suffer as we do now. We have bread and beer, but no cheese. The burghers will scant to deliver anything out of doubt of true payment, wrote one commander. The English army literally died or disappeared. They did no fighting. They were just too busy dying or fleeing the scene to do any fighting. It is a desperate little chapter in English military history. There will be a bit of a pattern here, I'm afraid, although some take a more positive view generally of Buckingham's expeditions that were poorly equipped, badly trained, with confused objectives and badly led. Plot spoiler. Meanwhile, incidentally, not going into it in depth here, 
but in February Buckingham agreed to provide English ships for Louis' attempt to subdue the Huguenot garrison at La Rochelle. This was not on the Protestant playlist at all, clearly, and would of course be reversed in a year or so. Of course, at the time, Buckers was still trying to construct an anti-Habsburg alliance and complete marriage negotiations with France, but still, mixed messages or what? Unless you are looking at this picture of statecraft from a distance with one eye closed and the wind blowing from the west while standing on one leg, the picture looks pretty odd. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Let us return then to those marriage discussions. There is a sort of inevitability about the agenda. Dowry, yep. Catholic dispensations, check. Entourage for the princess, yep. Papal dispensation on its way, sir. Strategic considerations, check. Views, needs and future prospects for the bride. Excuse me, what? I don't think we really know what Henrietta thought about the marriage, unlike the Infanta, about whom we have had snippets of indications that she was simply horrified at being thrown to the wolves, as marrying a heretic was known at the time. And maybe it was the same with Henrietta Maria, but she was certainly going to put her best foot forward when she arrived, and equally would be very concerned to champion the cause of Catholicism. So, she may well have had doubts, and look, England was a barbarous little place compared to the La Gloire de la France. Plus, of course, she had been born in 1609 and was therefore just a girl, really, 16 when she finally arrived. Of course, as you would expect, Great attention had been paid to her education, but it seems to have been focused on accomplishments of the person rather than of the intellect. So, riding, dancing, singing, court theatricals, that sort of thing. But although she had a tutor, she doesn't seem to have got much further than reading and writing. There was a lot of focus on religion, carefully shaped by the Carmelites in the devout piety that reigned at the French court. But anyway, we will hear more of Henrietta Maria in the fullness. Through the negotiations of 1624, of course, Charles received glowing reports from France. A lady of much loveliness and sweetness to deserve your affections as any creature under heaven can do. But Charles was on the rebound. Charles had been through the romantic ringer. Charles was a bruised, damaged soul. I exaggerate for effect, of course, but there was none of the passion and excitement we had for Maria Anna, and generally he was equally jaundiced about the negotiations around religion and so on. He knew much more now about just how impossible it would be to get things through Parliament. At one stage, faced with the latest demands from l'Eminence Rouge, le Cardinal Richelieu, he wrote to Carlisle in France, the messieurs have played you so scurvy a trick that if it were not for my respect I have for the person of Madame, I would not care a fart for their friendship. 
Language, Charlie. Language. I am shocked. Surely kings don't fart. Essentially, less swooning was in evidence here than heretofore. The knight's adventurer had been put away with other clashing symbols and childish things in the cupboard of state and maturity. The terms kind of reflect that. I mean, there was a reasonable dowry of 140,000 quid and a commitment for Henrietta Maria to have a Catholic entourage around her, her confessors, her own chapel, offering the true religion and the right to practice it, of course, personally. Lots of discussion then went on about more general toleration, blah, 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 but as regards real society-wide toleration, there was just a secret personal letter not included in the formal marriage arrangements from James promising to suspend the penal recusancy law. Promises which were worth, ladies and gentlemen, considerably less than the presumably expensive paper on which they were written, and probably the English copy was being used by the groom of the stool as backup cleaning material in the smallest room from an early date. The marriage treaty was concluded in November 1624. There was a betrothal in March 1625 in Gay Paris, where the Duke of Chevreuse stood in for Charles. The Duke's wife, incidentally, Marie de Ron, had already had an affair with Henry Rich, one of the English envoys, and would have a colourful life full of intrigues and conspiracies against the French state. But for that, you'll need a history of France. The history of France has so much more glamour than England, and I wish I could do one. Just think of the potential, endless potential, for franglais. I feel faint with excitement. Anyway, in May 1625, there was a magnificent marriage ceremony at Notre Dame, with Buckingham in attendance for Charles, politicking up and down the corridors of the Louvre and dribbling over Anne of Austria, getting cross with and being deceived by Richelieu, and getting excited by the Duke of Chevreuse barbers, which he loved so much that he brought one of them home with him. The public reaction to the marriage is quite interesting, and rather confirms, if I might relate this to a personal thing, to my sister's approach of painting as black a picture of her brother before he that is, I, met her friends, so that when they did meet, in contrast to the advanced reports, I didn't seem quite so awful. So, marriage to a Catholic princess from the ancient rival was not popular, but you know what? It wasn't Spain. So there's that. A lesser devil, essentially. Setting low expectations is the answer to a happy life. But all of that will have to wait for the next reign because by then King James VI of Scotland and the first of Great Britain was dead. James was now 58 and had spent a lifetime wearing what he had taken to calling his crown of thorns. He was increasingly tired and ill and a general sense of weariness had been visible in his writings over the last few years. The crown of thorns never went out of my head remembering the thorny cares which a king must be subject unto. He had become frustrated by the battle with his people over the Spanish match and his desire for peace above all, furious that the many writings and ballads painted a picture of him he felt to be deeply unfair. Yet you that know me all so well, why do you push me down to hell by making me an infidel, he wrote. His emotional reliance on Buckingham grew ever stronger 
At one point, ahead of a forthcoming visit, he wrote to him, that we may make at this Christmas time a new marriage, ever to be kept hereafter. For God so loved me, as I desire only to live in this world for your sake, and that I'd rather live banished in any part of the earth with you than live a sorrowful widow's life without you. I have, of course, rather focused on Buckingham's rewards, peccadilloes, political intrigues, not to mention household accounts, but it is worth repeating that James's love for his friend appears to have been fully returned, and Buckingham filled James's life with acts of kindness and thoughtfulness that increasingly eased James's existence. For example, he offered to be the king's amanuensis, and such a small kindness meant a lot to a king who had taken a keen interest in reading and expressed himself in writing all his life. And he wrote with gratitude that Buckingham much eased my labour considering the slowness, illness and uncorrectness of my hand. In March 1625, James fell dangerously ill. He was at Tybalds and had Buckingham and Charles both with him. Buckingham and his mum actually tried various remedies for his illness, which would leave an accusation of poison hanging over them, as James's doctors desperately sought to shift any blame. He suffered from a fever, then from a stroke, and eventually dysentery, finally dying in his bed in a most unsanitary way. Buckingham was shattered by his death and felt bereft, and took to his bed for a few days with a bout of illness. Charles was also deeply upset and concerned too for his friend. He wrote to Buckingham, I have lost a good father and you a good master, but comfort yourself, you have found another that will no less cherish you. Charles presented Buckingham with a golden key as a symbol that he could visit the royal palaces whenever he chose. For some, of course, this was a bad sign, an opportunity missed to have a change. The Earl of Kelly wrote to the Earl of Mar that There is some that does fear my Lord of Buckingham's power with him, and I assure you that this is not pleasing to most men. It took some time for money to be found for James's funeral, so he was embalmed, found to have a soft heart and black lungs, which is ironic for a man who wrote a diatribe against smoking. His funeral, when it finally happened on the 5th of May 1625, was magnificent, but apparently wildly disorganised, and he was laid to rest in Henry VII's chapel in Westminster Abbey. And so we reach the end of another reign. Shall we have then, ladies and gentlemen, a bit of a summing up, to draw a line under our first king of Great Britain? Now it is a bad habit to start with an apology, but then we are a nation noted for apologising with someone else, I don't know, steps on our feet, so maybe it is appropriate. I feel I have at times given James a rather hard time, slightly mocking on occasion. One of the problems, I think, is that a lot of his private thoughts and correspondences survive, and sometimes he does come across as awfully needy, sort of over-emotional, soft and wheedling, especially in his business with George Villiers, and baby Charles, so I think I might have been a bit mean. So let me try and be objective about this. And there are lots of positive things to say, surely. This was one of the very few scholar kings we have had in our history, 
who left a personal written account even more extensive, and in fact far more extensive, than Alfred. The quality of his writings has been criticised, but now very much rehabilitated by historian Jenny Wormold, and it is at least broad and extensive. He was a lover of scholarship, for example. He was an enthusiast for Oxford University, such as when he went in 1604 to the Bodleian Library and declared that if he were not a king, there would be no greater pleasure than in being chained to the library. He was also a patron of the art to a degree, although it's really Anne of Denmark who first gave Ben Jonson patronage, James then duly took over when she was gone, and developed a relationship with a scholar-poet which underpinned the Johnsonian mask. In terms of his religious record then, sure, the ship estate began to veer towards the rocks onto which it would wreck itself under Charles, and James's rather excessive fear of Puritans with their fierce support for Protestant war in Europe and resistance to the idea of peace with Spain. But no real damage had been done by the time he died. The level of separatism within the Church of England was still absolutely titchy-tiny. Bishop Lord was by no means at the centre of affairs yet. A judicious king, and James had generally been, at least until around 1615 and probably after that too, could have redressed the problems. The same problem was apparent in Scotland, where the Articles of Perth, which a better politician than his son could have tripped over, would come back to haunt Charles, but came on the back of decades of effective rule. In politics, there is something of a contrast between court and parliament. Actually, James was thoroughly personable, witty and very good at creating a positive atmosphere at court. But he undeniably ran into a lot of trouble with parliament, but historians have tended to point out that we do over-focus on parliamentary politics at this time because most of the politics of the time lay in the parish or in the country or in the court, not in the occasional parliaments. The court was where strategy was developed and discussed. Part of the problem was that James found it difficult to switch between the Scottish system, which was a system of governance very much based on noble and magnate regional power, and a monarch with almost absolute powers, barely restrained by a relatively unprestigious parliament, and the system in England. In England, parliament and law were very highly valued throughout the country and seen as central to the pride and national identity almost as much as the monarchy. The principle of consent, limits on royal power, were already in the bloodstream, and Parliament was already becoming the counterpoint to court. But really, still, as the 1624 Parliament showed, much of his problems were not really in his political skill. It was his policy of peace that was at odds with the demands of his people. And when that was resolved in 1624, with the end of the peace policy with Spain, the Parliament ran on without any problems at all. Possibly worse was that his court acquired a probably deserved reputation of dissolution and corruption that Elizabeth would just never have allowed, and to give him his due, nor would Charles. Thus the idea developed of a country as pure, Protestant, honest and law-abiding, a country in the sense of the regions, 
and this was contrasted with a dissolute, corrupt, religiously dodgy and pluralist centre at court, made significantly more potent by James's succession of favourites and suspicions of homosexuality, which at the time was not a plus. All of this was made much more acute by James's complete, total, towering and at times impressive or even surprising financial incontinence. Adjectives fail me. Although he had available for good periods two very talented financial administrators in Robert Cecil, Lord Salisbury, and Lionel Cranfield, the Earl of Middlesex. It's this, maybe, that led him into such conflict with his parliaments. And he passed up the chance to push through Cecil's great contract, and that might have had a major impact on both his and his son's reign. The failure to provide adequate financial support for the monarchy will not be the least reason for political conflict later. Coupled with his willingness to throw some talented public servants and ministers under the bus to save his favourite, Francis Bacon and Lionel Cranfield, his similar incontinence towards favourites led him to pass up more than one opportunity for reform, so Ireland being another case in point. James gets a surprisingly good press from many historians informing the basis of the successful and united entity that will be the United Kingdom, despite the early failure of his demand to create one Britain under the same system of laws. He encouraged interaction and a community of interest between the Scottish and English aristocracy that would be at the heart of Union in 1707, along with other things, and which built on the earlier integration of Wales. Surprising, because that union is now under strain, and because we know the ultimate outcome of the plantations in Ireland and the hatred and division that was to yield such a bitter and long-lasting legacy. Though it's worth noting that James didn't invent the idea of plantations that had been done before him, nor, of course, did he intend the resulting bitterness. Indeed, he believed strongly that it would actually bring peoples together under one shared British set of values and society. But surely, or it seems to me, above all, we have to give credit to James for pursuing peace with such determination, both within his kingdom and externally. It might be worth leaving the last words to one of his Scottish lords, Thomas Erskine, the Earl of Kelly, who remarked, As he lived in peace, so did he die in peace, and I pray God our King Charles I may follow him. Well, we'll see about that, won't we, ladies and gentlemen? OK, then, that is the end of that. By the way, I have done a chart of Buckingham's finances in 1624. Should you wish to see the detail, it is on the podcast post of the historyofengland.co.uk, this episode post, along with a painting by Rubens of James ascending to heaven carried by angels. There will now, I am sorry to say, be a period of noodling while I prepare the guest room for Mr Cockup, otherwise known as Charles I. In the meantime, herewith, gentle listener, the schedule for the next few weeks. Next time we have a guest episode from Greg. Greg offers up two very good and detailed history podcasts. One is called The Nations of Canada, and we're going to hear an episode from that series on the topic of Quebec in glorious advance of the normal run-of-the-mill listeners. So you will get a good idea of Greg's offering from that. He also chose to park his tanks on my lawn with his other cast, so I'm not going to tell you about that. 
Oh, Goldman. He also does a superb history of early modern Stuart England. But I hesitate to mention it because you'll leave me all alone. Alone on a wide, wide sea. And not even the ancient mariner enjoyed that, did he, with all his shrinking boards and all that sort of stuff. Then to my horror, my appalled horror, I have done three episodes, yes, three blasted episodes on Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre. Lord knows what I was thinking and what came over me. I imagine there will be a blizzard of corrections to my text from you lot. I was hoping that before we got on to Charles I as well, I would also do something about the Great Rebuilding, as it was termed by the great landscape architect W.S. Hoskins. The great growth of English vernacular architecture in the 16th and 17th century. Then finally, we'll hit the historiography of Charles and the Civil Wars. That is the programme, everyone. Thank you for listening. It is very good to have you with me. And thank you to all of those who have recently posted reviews on iTunes. They have been very lovely. Greg will be with you next week. I'll be back in a couple. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week full of fun, laughter and possibly cheesy nibbles. 